Start. Please do, yeah. yeah. Yep. So uh, let's go ahead and get going. Uh, so welcome to everyone to our uh, April 8th seminar. Uh, we've got the pleasure of having one of our uh, own docs, Dr. Gil Panchula, speaking to us today, um, treatment of medical conditions with cannabis. Um, so um, first, the, the business announcements um, are Speaker has nothing to disclose, no commercial support for the activity. Um, uh, for the nurses who were in attendance, you must attend 80% of the program to receive credit. And uh, also on the planning committee, one member of that committee, me, Brian Marsh, is a consultant for the Gilead Biosciences. Uh, the planning committee has resolved this conflict by altering my control. I didn't think I had any control over the end of this one, but they altered it. But perhaps it's sort of Neither the other planning committee member or the speaker have identified a financial interest. All right, that's the business. So, um, Dr. Fanchula did his initial training, got his MD in Albany, if I remember right, in a year. Moved to Boston, he was at the Brigham for his residency in anesthesiology, and then also fellowship in pain management. Um, came to Dartmouth-Hitchcock in 1997, if I got this right. He's been correct, ever right. since. Uh, the professor in anesthesiology is the uh, chief of the pain clinic and uh, is been very active in uh, many aspects of pain management. And is uh, pertinent to this, the editor-in-chief of a journal I didn't know existed, the International Journal of Medical Cannabinoids. Um, so, um, we're going to learn today about a topic that is uh, uh, sort of becoming much more prevalent in conversation with our patients in clinic. So, uh, very timely for that. Um, just have to say, um, reading through um, Gil's CV, his first publication had something to do with uh, pneumococcus and serotypes. And I'm remembering he once told me something about he had an early aspiration to go into infectious disease. But, um, didn't see the light. Yes. That is correct. It was it, it. had more to do with student loans, I think, <laughs> than uh, seeing see, see the light or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, well, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, my original love was infectious diseases, and it's one of those things where if that is your original love, it's hard to shake it, you know. And so I've, I've remained interested in, in infectious diseases uh, ever since then, even though I've taken a little bit of a detour through anesthesia and pain medicine. So, um, so I, I say now that I have like the best topic now, you know, because I got involved in this cannabis um, field uh, about, I would say it's eight or nine years ago now, because the state of Vermont asked me to be one of the physicians on their medical marijuana committee. And so the state was trying to decide um, whether or not they were going to authorize medical marijuana. And they were also trying to decide you know, how much should a patient be allowed to have, and what was a reasonable amount, and what are the reasonable medical conditions. <laughs> and so I, I had a really good experience uh, working on that committee. And the people on the committee were just absolutely hilarious. So Bobby Sands, who was the uh, district attorney for um, for, for, uh, for Norwich and that county was on the committee, and Bobby has become a, a, a very well-known proponent for legalization of mar marijuana now, and was involved in a very high-profile case involving a judge in the, in the town of Norwich 
who got arrested for growing marijuana on her property. And I won't tell the whole story, but it was a big story. And also the chief of the, the chief of the chief of police in the state of Vermont at that time was a guy named Steve McQueen, believe it or not. And, uh, and he was a terrific guy. So I met a lot of really interesting people and it sort of perked my interest in, in cannabis or marijuana as a useful treatment for our patients with chronic pain. Um, I then, um, I review articles for different journals and I reviewed an article from a group that was in Washington State. And they reported 490 patients approximately that a single physician was treating with cannabis in his practice at that time. And they reported just overwhelmingly positive results. And so no side effects and everybody had like total relief of their pain. And so I rejected the article because it was a too good to be true type of article. It was poorly, very poor documentation. It was so clearly biased. I rejected that article, and then they said, well, we want to accept it, you know, because there's not another single case series anywhere in the literature, you know, that describes this large number of patients. And they said, well, we'll accept it, and you can write an editorial. Is that okay? So I said, that was okay. So I sort of wrote this anti-marijuana editorial, and, uh, and so that attracted a lot of people who read my editorial, and then they started asking me to come speak. Um, but they, I think they sort of expected me to be way more anti cannabis and anti-marijuana than I turned out to be. And it's hard in this field, if you're going to speak in this field, to not be pro or anti-cannabis. It's very hard to try to be objective about it because it's so emotionally charged. And so many people have very strong opinions about it. But I'll try to be objective and, uh, and talk a little bit about the stuff. It's very interesting because I, you know, I, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. And so you know, I smoked marijuana when I was in high school and college. And, and I think a lot of my contemporaries did. But it's, it's interesting that the younger doctors in our midst um, don't have the same experience with marijuana. So Julie Franklin, who runs the pain service at the VA now, um, is much, much younger than I am. And Julie said to me one day, well, so how much marijuana is in an ounce? Is it like one joint? And I said, well, OK, so, so, it, so it gives you sort of a frame of reference where people are coming from. Because there are really a lot of people that don't have any idea about, about the sort of what a lot of us assume to be so simple. And so I will tell you then that uh, I went to the Danish forensic literature. And, uh, and there's a, whole, a large body of forensic literature on cannabis, as you might imagine. And, and they have estimates for the amount of high potency marijuana in a joint and how many joints are in an ounce. And it turns out that if you, if you look at the Danish literature, there are about 70 joints in an ounce of marijuana. Um, so, so just for a point of reference um, from some people. Um, and so, so there's a couple of things that I like about this drug. And I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll just move right along because I have a lot of materials. The first thing is, so what is the general strategy if you bind cannabinoid receptors? And I'm, I'm kind of a simple guy. You know, when I send my patients to the psychologist, I really, I, I don't want too much of an explanation. I want to know, like, you know, can you help them or can't you help them? You know, and are they really crazy or are they not so crazy? You know, so, so I want a simple explanation. And so this is a well-described, uh, simple explanation that just states that the general strategy of action is to help cells, tissues, and organs reestablish physiological steady state after acute or chronic perturbations of homeostasis. And so the, so the general strategy of binding to cannabinoid receptors is to reestablish re, re, um, re a state of homeostasis. So that's kind of interesting. Um, the drug, the receptors are ubiquitous and pleiotropic, and I love that expression because ubiquitous is what it, it, everybody knows what that is. Like opioid receptors, there, there's receptors in the knee, there's receptors in your brain, there's receptors in your spinal cord, they're they're everywhere. 
And the pleiotropic nature of marijuana makes it a very interesting drug because what that means is it has effects on the pain system, it has effects on the anxiety system, it has effects on the sleep system, it stimulates your appetite. So there are multiple physiological effects when you bind to these receptors that turn out to be pretty useful for our patients with, with chronic pain and pretty useful for our patients with HIV. I mean, if you have a drug that can reduce neuropathic pain can, can assuage anxiety in patients who suffer from a pre-existing anxiety disorder, who can stimulate your appetite and, and which can put you to sleep, that's like a pretty decent drug. Um, it's interesting, too, because when I, you know, years ago, when I used to talk to my patients, I would say, well, you know, there's nothing we can do for your pain right now, and I'm sorry, but, you know, there's big pharma and medical researchers, they're working so hard at trying to find new treatments for pain that I want you to be optimistic that in five or ten years there'll be a new drug out there that will be very useful for you. So my career is, is pretty much gone by and that, that drug has never emerged. There has never been a drug that has emerged in my career that was not another opioid, not another non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, not another antidepressant or not another anticonvulsant. And so I get pretty excited when I start reading the literature about a drug that's actually available to our patients and, and actually is a new drug. It's something that is probably a lot safer than a lot of the other drugs um, that we use. And so, yeah, so, the, so, this, so this ubiquitousness makes the drug a focus for, um, for drug developers. Although it's interesting what's happening in the whole um, cannabis business world now. If you, if you want to subscribe to a free journal, a free electronic journal, you can, you can subscribe to Cannabusiness. It's Cannabusiness Weekly. And, uh, and, and I, you know, this stuff is so interesting because, you know, a lot of the material doesn't really come out in medical journals. And a lot of the material comes out in other sources. And so if you want to know, for example, so, you know, if you go to the, there's four dispensaries that are open now in Vermont. And so what do they sell there? You know, do they sell just pot that you can smoke? Do they sell edibles? Do they sell candies, elixirs, what do they sell? And a lot of that material is not readily available unless you contact somebody who goes to this dispensary or contact people from the dispensary. But you can read cannabis reports and learn that probably 40% of all the cannabis that's being sold in the United States right now is inedible. And so not inedible, it's an edible. <laughs> and so, which is pretty interesting. And, uh, and so, for example, I have a patient, and I don't want this to be anecdotal, but I have a patient who's 77 or 78. She was on 90 milligrams of methadone a day for fibromyalgia and chronic neuropathic pain. And she came to me wondering what she could do. She's off her methadone entirely. She goes to the Montpelier dispensary. She has a lozenge that she eats early in the morning, and she has a lozenge that she eats in the evening. And she has an elixir, and she puts a drop of this substance under her tongue, usually around 2 o'clock, and her pain is better controlled than it ever was. And, and she, so there's two main um, species of marijuana, this cannabis sativa and cannabis indica. And uh, I often get these confused, but the sativa tends to be the alerting species. So this is stuff, as doctors and nurses, seems like we ought to know about because our patients are being given this stuff at our recommendation. But most of us have no idea about any of this. I learned from my patients. She says, well, you know, I take this in the morning. It's a, it's a sativa extract. And she, so she shows me the label. And it says CBD um, colon THC 2 to 1. So it's a two-to-one ratio of cannabidiol to tetrahydroxycannabinol. THC is the psychotropic portion of marijuana. It's the only sub... There's 60 or 70 different cannabinoids 
in marijuana. And they call it uh, standardized cannabis extract. If you take up marijuana, just grind it up, you really don't know what's in there. You know that the most predominant cannabinoid is THC. The second most predominant cannabinoid is, is cannabidiol. And you know that for generations, these drugs have been, been bred so that there'd be high concentrations of THC. And we know that the THC tends to be the psychoactive component of marijuana. And we, th and we think that the CBD may be more important in treating certain conditions, like epilepsy, for example, um, and maybe other conditions like pain. There are people that believe that the CBD is the pain-relieving portion of marijuana, but that is probably not true. Because and I, I do this a lot, I get way ahead of myself, which is okay. So there's a researcher from Columbia Presbyterian Hospital named Meg Haney, who's very, very interesting. And she's had an inpatient marijuana research unit at Columbia for at least 10 years. She has a 16-bed inpatient cannabis research unit. And she did a beautiful study comparing Marinol to inhaled cannabis for pain and found that there was no difference between Marinol and inhaled cannabis for pain. And this was a double-blind, randomized, prospective study where the patients got to smoke a, a substance that had zero THC in it. So you can, you can produce clones of marijuana. All marijuana, you know, uh, marinol is synthetic, but every other marijuana product that's on the market, Sativex, et cetera, are all horticulturally produced. And it's really the only good way to produce a substance like, like cannabis because, because people talk about it in a, an ensemble effect. So it might be that you have these 60 different cannabinoids. Maybe you need some, just like with the antidepressants, maybe you need sort of the serotonin reuptake inhibitor and the norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Maybe you need to have an entourage effect. Maybe you need a little bit of THC and some CBD and some other cannabinoids that we don't really understand very much about. And so, so Dr. Haney's study showed that there was no difference between inhaled cannabis and Marinol. Um, but you can criticize this in a lot of ways. And, you, and, you, and we don't want to say that tea, you can give people Marinol instead of giving them marijuana because they're not really the same, even though this one study that she does, said that she did supported this proposition. But still, it's still open for a lot of debate. So um, the, uh, the CB1, two major receptors, CB1, CB2. CB1 was identified in the 80s. CB2 is identified in 93. Um, cannabidiol has low affinity for CB1 or CB2 receptors and is shown to antagonize the action of, uh, at, at, of CB1 and CB2 receptors, which is pretty interesting. And so, um, and again, I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself. Um, but, you know, so one of the big things about marijuana is that it stimulates your appetite. There is no drug that's on the market that stimulates your appetite to the same degree as marijuana. And, and different studies have been shown, and that's shown to be true. A number of years ago, a CB antagonist was put on the market, which actually decreased people's appetites. And you can imagine the, the financial allure of having a, a drug you could take that's going to decrease people's appetites. You know, I'm going to sign up for that myself, and so are a lot of other people right away. But it turned out that this drug had toxicity. It was put on the market, but there was toxicity that became apparent with post-marketing surveillance studies, and, it, and the drug was taken off the market for that reason. But just I, I use that just as an illustration of the potentials. And so you might say, okay, well, you know, we need to develop this drug. You know, the drug companies need to identify the 60 cannabinoids and the, the 80 terpenoids, which are substances in marijuana that have similar effects, and we need to figure out, you know, what the exact right composition is for each one of these drugs. And I would say, okay, well, that sort of makes sense, except that I'll be dead by the time that that ever happens. And so, you know, if I want something to take care of my patients right now, then, it, then I really can't wait 
Um, really can't wait that long. And, these, and the plants are genetically manipulated. As I said, the FDA has guidelines for horticultural production of drugs, and marijuana included. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so Sativex, which uh, many of you folks are probably familiar with, was the first drug licensed in the world, UK, Canada, Spain, etc., and is a one-to-one -one ratio mixture, mixture of THC and cannabidiol. Um, and, and included, though, even in Sativex, is this, this uh, cannabis extract. And so all the other drugs are still in there, too. Um, and it was initially indicated for pain and spasticity and multiple sclerosis. And I'll talk about that in a second when I have a slide that shows that, uh, the, uh, that, that paper. Um, so phyto, phytocannabinoids, just this, the, this terminology you read about, phytocannabinoids are essentially all the cannabinoids because they're all contained in the plant, and, uh, except for marrow. And so marinol is not a phytocannabinoid. It's a synthetic cannabinoid. But everything else that's available is, uh, is a phytocannabinoid. And, they, and, the, and cannabinoids ha have activity on other receptors also. For example, the serotonin receptors. But that's still a work in progress. So PCBs, phytocannabinoids, are known to protect neurons from neurotoxic stimuli or neurodegeneration via a range of properties. They're, they're anti-inflammatory. Um, and they have many effects, of course, because we're just learning about it. And I put this slide up not because I'm going to go through it, but this is just what it looks like. I mean, you start out with, uh, with CBG, and, and, and in the metabolic pathway, there are a variety of different cannabinoids, 60 different cannabinoids, that have, that have been identified thus far. And these other drugs called terpenoids, too. So I know I'm going really fast because there's a, so much material to cover and I want to get through everything, but I hope I'll have time at the end for questions. So PCBs and epilepsy. So we've all seen, or many of us have seen the, the TV show, and I can never remember the guy's name who did the piece for 60 minutes or whatever it was, but, uh, but about a child who I think was in Washington State who had intractable epilepsy and was having 20 seizures a day and nothing helped with these seizures. And um, she hired, they hired uh, some producers who I can't, I think they were from Oregon. If you looked at, if you watch the show, it's like these four kids that are like, look like Tuck students, you know, who have like 150 acres of, uh, of cannabis growth facilities. And, and they probably are Tuck students if they're smart. <laughs> and, and, and they probably are. And so, uh, but they, they developed a pure CBD, marijuana, okay, no THC, but, but a large percentage of CBD, and this drug helps control her seizures. And now there is a study ongoing here at Dartmouth. I don't know if there are any neurologists here or anybody from, is involved in this study, but there is a study ongoing here at Dartmouth as, a, as one of the centers looking at two different cannabinoids as treatment for certain types of seizures. And so if you have a patient with intractable epilepsy, you can talk to the neurology guys, and they might be eligible to enroll in those studies. I never can remember the names of the types of epilepsy that, uh, for the patients that they're looking for. Um, but the bottom line is, and I'm gonna, I'll just sort of summarize what's on this slide, and that is THC itself is probably pro-eleptogenic. There may be some pro-eleptogenic and some anti-eleptogenic properties in pure THC, but CBD turns out to be pretty purely anti-eleptogenic. And so if you have something that's high in CBD, it's very useful for patients with epilepsy. Now, should it be your first-line treatment? The problem with, with cannabis as a first-line treatment for anything really is the psychoactivity part of it. And, and any other drug that were on the market would have a hard time making it to the market given this psychoactive profile. I mean, you know, we can't, you can't really, so, so we have a, um, I'm working with the American College of Occupational Environmental Medicine right now, 
And, um, and we have produced a white paper, which has just been accepted for publication, and, and answer it, trying to address the question. So what should employers do with people who are allowed to have medical marijuana? So if you're a doctor at Dartmouth and you have a medical marijuana card, can I like go on my lunch break out to the parking lot and smoke some pot or put a marijuana lozenge under my tongue and come back safely to work? Or if I am a bus driver, well, if I'm a school bus driver, you know, or if I work in a nuclear reactor plant, you know, or if I do like Lucille Ball and just put chocolates in a box, you know. So, so it's really a pretty impossible question to answer. And there already have been major industrial accidents reported in patients who have been impaired by the use of cannabis. And so, so it's a really hard problem, and especially because the psychoactive effects of cannabis can persist for 72 hours. And so, you, you know, you can't smoke a joint you know, on Friday, on Sunday night, and come to work on Monday morning and be certain that you're not going to be impaired by the use of this drug. So that's, so that's a pretty big problem. And, and, you know, the occupational medicine guys, they're trying to deal with it, and they're, in, they're real time having to deal with it. And there are already lawsuits, as you can imagine, of people suing employers who will, who will not hire them because they're using cannabis. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, it, it's kind of an interesting question, and there's not a lot of science involved in the answer, really. Okay, so for example, how about driving? You know, the state of Colorado is having to deal with this right now, and the way they're dealing with it is they're going to have a serum level. Okay, they're going to say if your marijuana level is above this number, okay, you're impaired. If it's below that number, you're not impaired. But that turns out to be not a very good way to do that because people who are very experienced users you know, can have a pretty high concentration and not be at all impaired. And people who are novice users can have a very low concentration and be quite impaired. And, and the, um, the testing, um, the, the roadside testing, I'm blocking on what that's called. It's got three initials associated with it. But, you know, if you get pulled over by the police and they say, well, can you walk a straight line? Can you go from foot to foot? There are three parts to that examination. People who are impaired by the use of alcohol will uniformly fail two of, of the three of those parts of that test. Field sobriety testing. They'll universally fail two of the three tests, but people who are impaired by the use of cannabis will universally fail only one of those three tests. And there's a subpopulation of people who are not impaired at all who will fail one of those tests. And so you can't really do field sobriety testing for cannabis. And so, um, so, you know, a lot of these topics are just sort of topics as an aside. You know, so if I have a patient, for example, if I have a patient who's, so I have a, pa I have a patient who's 70-something, he had an osteosarcoma of his hip, he had a total hip disarticulation when he was like 15, he's in his 70s now, he has terrible neuropathic pain, terrible phantom pain, and nothing has helped. And so I have filled out the paperwork for him in the state of Vermont, attesting to the fact that he has a medical condition that qualifies him for the use of cannabis. And he gets great relief from it. You know, so I don't really care. He's retired. You know, I don't have to worry about the work problem. He's not 21. I have a little bit of a problem. You know, if my axial low back pain, 21-year-old, comes in, I'm not picking on anybody who's 21, but if a very young person comes in, um, you know, and is just unemployed, et cetera, et cetera, then I don't fill out the paperwork because I think that it's probably, it's possible that this person is going to use the drug for abuse and not for, not for, for um, you know, for, for medical reasons. It's interesting because if you look at the state of Vermont compared to the state of California, and we have this data, and we haven't published this yet, but we're going to publish it. We looked at the Vermont Marijuana Registry, and we found that in the state of Vermont, where um, the state did it very wisely, I think they really did a very 
wise job of the rules that they created for medical cannabis. About 1.2 per thousand residents of the state of Vermont have medical marijuana cards now, which is a little more than two years after the first dispensary opened in the state of Vermont. In California, that number is about 15. In California, the average age of dispensary users is in the early 40s, and in Vermont, it's in the mid-50s. And so, I mean, I don't want, you know, it's, I, I am, you're right, I'm discriminating, I admit it, you know, but I can't help it. And, um, you know, so I, th I think that, th I think that there's not, everybody's worried about the abuse thing, um, which probably they should be, um, but, uh, but it hasn't happened in the state of Vermont. And, I, and just uh, as long as we're on that topic, the whole abuse thing, um, is it safer to use medical cannabis or is it safer to buy cannabis from a dealer, you know, in whatever town you live in? And so the answer there is pretty obvious, too. It's obviously safe. So we're put in this funny position as physicians because, yeah, it's safer to use medical cannabis. So, you know, you go to these uh, dispensaries now, and the dispensaries are required to put the, CH, the THC concentration, the CBD concentration on the, on, the, um, on the drug itself, the container that the drug comes in. They're required to do quality uh, assurance testing. We know that the drugs aren't contaminated with fungus. We know that there are not glass beads in the drug, in, you know, put into the drug to, he to make it heavier weighted, as happened in uh, France. And everybody developed uh, hemoptysis and pulmonary hypertension because of the contamination of the marijuana with glass beads. So it's probably a lot safer. So it's hard for me. You know, I'm trying to keep this on the medical side and not the political side. But it's very hard you know, to say that if somebody comes in and says, well, I'm already smoking you know, two joints a day, and I find it's really useful. You know, it's hard for me to, to say, no, I'm not going to attest to the fact that you have a medical condition that qualifies for you for the use of marijuana in the state of Vermont, because it's, in my opinion, so it's a, it's a difficult dilemma, I, I think, that we're all faced with quite often now um, with medical marijuana. And, and, and I'm going to go off on a quick aside here, too, just in case anybody doesn't know. Um, in the state of Vermont, uh, the way it works is, if you have a license in the state of Vermont, or if you have a license in an adjoining state, you can fill out the paperwork for one of your patients. And you have to, do, you have, to have two things. You have to attest to two things. One is that you have what's called a bona fide physician-patient relationship as defined by the state of Vermont, which basically means that you've conducted a complete history and physical on your patient and have seen the patient for at least six months. And the other is you just attest to the fact that the patient has a medical condition that qualifies them for medical marijuana in the state of Vermont. So we're not actually prescribing. So we're not putting our DEA licenses at risk. And the Vermont Medical Society was very involved with this and did a really good job with the way this gets done. So it's actually pretty safe for all of us to do this. Um, and it's pretty easy in the state of Vermont. New Hampshire, we're still sort of waiting to hear what's going to happen because um, you know, the law was approved, um, I think, two years ago or two and a half years ago now for medical cannabis. And the state started accepting applications for dispensaries probably six or nine months ago. And they still haven't announced the awardees, even though they said they were going to announce who the awardees were at, uh, at the end of March. And, um, and the state of New Hampshire is interesting for a lot of reasons, but they've divided the state into four counties, four sections, not counties, but four sections. There's going to be one dispensary in each section. And if you picked the section that we live in, which is the least populated section of the four sections in the state, you're going to be allowed to actually have a, you know, apply to have a second dispensary that you can open up anywhere else you want. So they're trying to encourage people to apply for dispensary 
you know, in, in our area because they think that uh, not a, there aren't going to be a lot of people that are going to apply for it. And as an enticement, you might be able to apply for another dispensary. Um, it, it's kind of an interesting business, too. I keep thinking of it. I don't know if anybody here is, is part owner of the Urgent Care over by Gasanos. And so, you know, that got in all the papers because it's one of the Dartmouth doctors, I think, that opened up these urgent cares. And uh, I go past that place. It's like a morgue, you know. It's like, I don't know that they're making money. There's never anybody in there. And so I don't know if there's a startup period or whatever. But I will tell you this, and that is that the dispensaries in many New England states are, are, have their survival threatened because they can't make enough money to stay open. And a lot of people open these dispensaries because they think that what's, what happened in Colorado is going to happen in New Hampshire and is going to happen in Vermont, and that is that marijuana is going to be legalized. And what the states will do then is they'll say, well, it's legal now, but the only place that can sell it for one year are the existing dispensaries. And so a lot of people believe that if they can just survive until marijuana is actually legalized, that there'll be this huge payoff when you're the only seller you know, in the state of New Hampshire, Vermont, or whatever for that one year. But right now, a lot of the uh, dispensaries, it's interesting because there are people who are, who are making offers to buy out a lot of these smaller dispensaries in other states that are barely surviving. So big, big aside, huh? uh, let's say. So neurodegenerative disease, so multiple sclerosis. Um, so there was actually a very, there were a couple of really good studies done. And um, one looked at spasticity in multiple sclerosis. And, um, and spasticity, many of you probably know, is measured by something called the modified Ashworth score. And so zero, and it's, so spasticity is a velocity-dependent resistance to movement. If there's no resistance, it's zero. If you can detect a little bit of resistance, it's one. You know, if you can't move, if the arm is fixed in flexion, that's a four. And everything else is sort of subjectively defined, but somewhat selectively in between. And so this very nice study that was done um, looked at modified Ashworth scores and found that there was no difference in modified Ashworth scores in patients who smoked marijuana who had multiple sclerosis compared to patients who didn't. However, the patients stated that they felt less spasticity. And so, um, so, no, so again, it's hard to dissociate the psychoactive properties of the drug from the non-psychoactive properties of the drug. But the other part of it is, is that the Ashworth scale is very dependent. You know, it's very examiner-dependent. It's not very specific. And it may be that the modified Ashworth scale, many people believe, was not capable of distinguishing the improvement that these patients possibly had. The Cupid study was a great study. Cannabinoid use in progressive inflammatory brain disease. The hypothesis was that, well, you know, it's an anti-inflammatory. Maybe it will prevent the progression of multiple sclerosis. It turns out it did not. So 493 patients randomized to placebo versus delta-9-THC, which is a big criticism of a lot of these studies now. Because remember, I spoke about the entourage effect and the effect of cannabidiol relative to THC, et cetera. So all this study really shows is that THC the use of THC did not slow the progression of chronic progressive multiple, multiple sclerosis. Um, Parkinson's disease, um, mixed. Huntington's disease, a, um, a pretty decent double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial in a small number of patients showed no effect of uh, CBD on chorea severity. Okay, and, so, and, and same thing with um, nabilone, which is another commercially horticulture, it's a phytocannabinoid, Delta 9 THC, no relief for Huntington's disease. So anxiety is, is interesting, and I have the references or, you know, in all the slides and all. But, um, but just to make a long story short, 
The way it works is, is that if you are not an, if you don't suffer from anxiety disorder, you're not an anxious person and you smoke marijuana, you can get very anxious and paranoid. If you're a person that suffers from anxiety disorder, it tends to be anxiolytic. So, you know, and everybody else is sort of unpredictable. Um, so one of the, one of the problems you'll, you'll, you'll see from some of the studies uh, that I'm going to show coming up is that um, one of the, the side effects that people have that causes them to have to be removed from these studies is acute delirium, that they, you know, cannabis-induced acute delirium. And I had a patient here who, um, who, she's the most wonderful patient, you know, she had a, um, she had a hysterectomy in the lithotomy position. And there were complications, and she was kept in the lithotomy position for a long period of time, had a stretch injury of the sciatic nerve. And she has terrible pain from her sciatic neuropathy. She's in her 40s. And, um, you know, so she decided she would try cannabis. Nothing has helped her at all. She decided to, to try cannabis, and she got together with her two daughters. And it's very funny because the, the women that I've given the drug to will often meet with their daughters you know, and get marijuana butter, and they'll bake something. It's pretty, it's, it's actually, and they come in, and they tell you the story. It's really kind of nice. It's pretty funny. But uh, she did this, and she developed um, acute delirium, which was quite severe. Her daughters had to take her to the emergency department. She was treated incorrectly, as always, with benzodiazepines until somebody finally figured out to give her, you know, Haldol, and she was fine. And, uh, but, but, it, but this is something that occurs. I don't know what the frequency is, and nobody knows what the frequency is. But I would estimate that I've probably completed the paperwork, I don't know, for 30 or 40 patients. Um, and, and I have had one case of acute delirium. And so this is, a, this is something you have to warn your patients about. The other thing I want to just make sure I mention it that you have to warn your patients about is, especially in cannabis-naive patients, the drug can cause tachycardia, it can cause peripheral vascular resistance to drop, and can cause orthostatic hypotension. So when I have my 75-year-old who's going to go to Montpelier and buy, you know, 25% THC marijuana, which is like a really ridiculously high percentage now, you know, I warn them that the way to do this is just to take, just take one puff and then sit there and wait half an hour and see what happens. And do not rush it. And be very, very careful. Have somebody with you and don't get up too quickly from your chair. I warn them about orthostatic hypotension. I warn them about the fact that the drug is extremely, extremely potent. They really need to be very careful with it. The edibles are the really dangerous drugs nowadays, especially in Colorado. We, we've no, learned that there have been multiple visits to emergency departments with, of kids who buy these cookies, in, uh, you know, whose, whose parents buy the cookies in the, um, in, the, in the dispensaries. And each one of these cookies has 15 doses you know, of marijuana in it, and you know, but some nine-year-old, you know, sees this cookie sitting on the counter and eats the whole cookie, and so that's acute cannabis delirium syndrome, and they're in the emergency room, you know, usually being improperly treated again with, uh, with um, benzos, and until somebody try, finally figures out that a half a milligram or a quarter milligram of Haldol will actually solve the problem in five minutes. Uh, so so I, I, you have to be really careful with, um, you know, with your patients who, uh, who are prone to have a problem with orthostatic hypotension, more likely to have a problem with orthostatic hypotension. Depression, you know, um, inconsistent results. I mean, that's really um, the best that I can say. You know, in patients with advanced cancer, multiple sclerosis, and chronic pain, THC has shown significant antidepressant activity. It's such a multifactorial you know, it's a correlation, I think, and not necessarily a cause and effect relationship. And so I'm not really sure what, what that's all about. Um, 
Yeah, so I already mentioned this. You know, there is no other drug that stimulates the appetite as well as cannabis. So cardiovascular effects. So I already talked about a lot of this stuff. What, what is also interesting, so, so MI and stroke associated with the use of cannabis have been reported. Um, so a couple of things. First is that in animal studies, cannabis has shown to be, cannabis has shown to decrease the size of, of cardio, cardiac muscle damage in patients who have cardiac ischemia, ischemia. And so it actually decreases the area of injury in patients who have cardiac ischemia. So which is kind of interesting. And so, you know, the next, when the EMTs come to my house, you know, when I'm having chest pain, they'll put an aspirin under my tongue and a cannabis lozenge under my tongue right next to it, maybe. But, uh, but it, is, it is pretty interesting that it does appear that the drug does have that effect. It reduces the, the size of permanent injury with ischemic, ischemic models in animals. And, there, and there's some references in there that, um, that show that's true. Now, um, so the whole, the whole business about stroke and, uh, and MI associated with the use of marijuana, um, there's been a very lot written about it. So there have been 58 or 59 cases of stroke associated with the use of marijuana. And most of the people who write about this from the neurology literature or from the cardiac literature really feel that it's just a coincidence. And that if you consider that you know, one out of 10 people in the United States, adults in the United States, has smoked marijuana within the last 30 days, which is, some, which is a typical statistic for the use of these drugs nowadays, um, you know, that it's not on you, you, would, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that 58 people had a stroke, you know, while they were smoking marijuana. So it appears to be more of a coincidence than a cause and effect thing at this point in time. And there's a lot written about it if you're interested in looking at it. So I'm going to go really fast through these next four studies. Um, so, so what I like about this field now, too, for me, is that so pain, you know, so there's 10, you know, back pain, there's 10,000 articles, right? So if, you, if you're looking for articles on the effects of smoked cannabis on chronic pain, there's only four articles in the literature. And so, so this is great. I can review the entire medical literature with you in less than two minutes, as it's going to turn out. And so, so I'll, I'll go through this. As, so, so here it is. So this is neuropathic pain. Whoops. Neuropathic pain. And what I want you to see is that there was a statistically significant difference between 0% and 9.4% THC, but very modest. The average daily pain in the 0% group, when it was improved, was a 6.1, and in the 9.4% THC was 5.4. So that difference between 6.1 and 5.4, I would call that clinically irrelevant. Okay? And in pain, in general, we write about this a lot, too, and we tend to say, just as a rule of thumb, that you need to see a two-point difference in pain scores in order for it to be really clinically relevant. That being said, most of the studies that are being done that get new opioids on the market, get new antidepressants on the market, et cetera, have, num whoops, have numbers that are similar to that. That's what they all look like. And what, the, what they do, what these authors do, is they talk about number needed to treat which is a great concept. Because if you look at all the 50 people or the 100 people, it might only be you know, one-tenth, you know, one point out of a 10 point, on a zero 10-point scale improvement. But the question is, how many people do you have to give this drug to before you have a person who has a 30% or a 50%, whatever, however you want to define it, reduction in pain? And it turns out that if you look at the numbers for Neurontin, for example, that number is about 3.3. For Lyrica, it's about the same. For Oxycodone, it's about 2. Okay, which is interesting. And if you look at marijuana, that number tends to be somewhere between 2.5 and 3.5. So if you look at all these studies, that's what they're all going to show you. 
that, that there is a number needed to treat of patients who will get relief from the use of this drug, 30% or 50% reduction of pain, however the authors chose to define it, okay, even though the average daily pain of the, of the entire group is not that uh, impressive. Smoked medicinal cannabis for neuropathic pain and H HIV. I, I would love to go through this all with you because, you know, you think, how am, how am I going to, you know, design this cannabis study? You know, so they're all pretty funny how they <laughs> design their cannabis studies. 25 milligrams, you know, in a bowl that's inhaled, you know, for 30 seconds and it's held in the lungs for 30 seconds and then exhaled for 30 seconds. So, you know, they have to, they define it very clearly. And if you want to do these studies, forget it. I mean, you basically need a vault inside a vault to store the drugs. It's, it's virtually impossible to do these types of studies without this enormous investment because the FDA and the DEA both have very stringent requirements and how the drug is stored at your facility and how it's dispensed and everything else. It's almost, it, I mean, you have to do a study to figure, figure out how to do the study because it's so complicated. And I'm not kidding when I talk about vaults. I mean, if you have a, if you, if your marijuana is stored in a concrete room, okay, that is not sufficient because the DEA will tell you that it's very easy to blast through a concrete wall to steal your marijuana. And you can say, well, you know, all they have to do is like go to Lebanon. You know, they don't really have to blast through my concrete. They'll say, nope, they have to blast through the concrete wall. So, so it's hard to, that's why there's only four studies. So this is, this is another study. This, was the, this is an HIV study and it's a very decent study. And two subjects withdrew, one with acute cannabis-related delirium and one with intractable smoking-related cough. And what I hated about this study was, and just as an aside, they used this DDS scale. So they say, well, you know, cannabis use reduced DDS by 3.3 points. I'm saying to myself, that sounds great. You know, 3.3 points, that's better than anything. But the DDS scale, which I had never heard of before, and I'm, as I'm going to present this data, I figure I need to figure out what some of these scales are. And so I look it up, and it's a 0 to 21-point scale not a zero to 10 point scale. And so, I, and the only reason they used this scale, I'm convinced that the only reason they used the scale is because they were trying to amplify the good looks of their results. And I think that most people who read the study don't realize, you know, that it was a, this ridiculous scale that no one ever heard. I've heard of all the scales. You know, I mean, these scales don't come along that I don't hear of. I never heard of the, is it a dental scale? <laughs> is my question. So I don't know. Um, so this is, this is another, so two of the four studies were in HIV patients, by the way. And this is uh, the same thing. So um, I, I have a graph that I want to show you. And this was, so th there's some interesting stuff. So for example, 7% versus 3.5% versus placebo. And really no difference between the 7% and the 3.5%, but both superior to placebo. These are what the graphs look like, and if you so to illustrate that if, that if you look at in, as a group, you know these patients aren't getting like a ton of relief. So here we go. So this is this um, the the clear triangles are placebo, the squares are 3.5% THC, and the triangles are 7% THC. No real difference between the 7% and 3.5% THC, and yes, definitely a difference between that and placebo, but a very modest difference. Okay, across the board, a very modest difference, which is not any different. I want to emphasize, not any different from gabapentin, Lyrica, Cymbalta. Okay, most of the drugs that we use. Um, I, I just put this up because it's the vaporized version of the uh, of the Wilsey paper. He basically, Barth Wilsey, basically just redid the study. With, um, with, with a vaporizer instead. And there are a lot of these other studies now. And so if you look at the European Federation of, Neuros of Neuroscience, 
Um, one of, they, they recommend cannabinoids as level A treatment in multiple sclerosis, HIV neuropathy, and multi-etiology neuropathic pain. Pretty interesting. You know, and a lot of it, it's almost like the lidoderm thing. You know, everybody loves lidoderm because it's so safe. You just can't hurt somebody with lidoderm, even though it doesn't work on anybody, essentially. And so, um, you know, but, but so having, being very safe is a definite advantage if you want to get your drug recommended. Um, chronic non-cancer pain. Uh, the only reason I reference this article is because all of the other articles had to do with neuropathic pain. This is paid from fibromyalgia and rheumatoid arthritis. And so there does seem to be value in that subgroup also. Um, so so uh, there's, there's a lot of material here. Um, and I'll sort of cut to the chase with this stuff too. So if you take, um, if you, if you take cannabis ignited extract and you put it on the skin of rodents, it causes cancer, just like tobacco does. Um, but it does not seem to cause cancer in human beings for some reason. And there are a number of studies now that come, of course, from the West Coast um, looking at cannabis as an anti-neoplastic drug. And, um, and you read, you know, I read these studies myself. I don't know why I, I laugh when I read them, but I just laugh when I read them. And, you know, so there's a study of um, glioformium, um, um, glioblastoma multiforme, six patients where they pack the tumors. After they excise the tumors, they pack the tumor bed with marijuana and found that it worked as well as any chemotherapeutic regimen that was available at that time to treat uh, glioblastoma multiforming. And so the, so the studies are peculiar, a lot of them, um, but, but they are out there. And, um, and so I, I look at this a couple of ways. And the, the cancer thing is, boy, the big criticism is we, you know, small animal studies, large animal studies, dose finding studies, toxicity studies, you know, that's not being done with, with cannabis. Those studies are not being done, they're not going to be done. But what we have with cannabis is we have probably the largest post-marketing surveillance study in history. It probably goes back 3,000 years. And so, you know, if you, if you believe the estimates, which, you, which I do, of the people that are, the percentage of people in this country that are using marijuana, if this drug caused lung cancer, we would know about it. Okay, somebody would have shown that correlation. And there are a lot of large groups, and I have some slides here that will show you big HMO groups where they've looked at 65,000 patients, um, other smaller studies where they've looked at 40,000 patients with head and neck squamous cell carcinoma, trying to find an association. And if you control for tobacco smoking, socioeconomic status, and alcohol use, there does not appear to be an increased incidence of cancer in patients using cannabis. Okay, so. Um, and, and that's written, this is Critical Reviews in Oncology, 2012. At this point, the majority of studies do not support the hypothesis that smoke cannabis is strongly associated with an increased risk. And, and I think they carefully put that word strongly associated in there. Okay, because I think that the final word is not out. And I have another slide that's going to show a cohort study that was published in 2013, which showed that the relative risk in patients who were moderate or heavy users, users of cannabis in, in one of the Scandinavian countries was about two compared to patients who were light or never users of cannabis. And so and even though you can criticize that study, it's hard for me to believe you know, that you can inhale the stuff and it can't hurt you. Um, but uh, you know, I, it, the data doesn't really appear, appear to show that. So this is the cohort study that I was talking about. And you can find the reference in here. Um, a lot of the stuff I already have spoken about. So this is a great paper, and this paper I've been citing a lot lately. Um, <laughs> it's so interesting, really. So, so this is medical cannabis laws and opiate analgesic overdose mortality rates in the United States, 1999 to 2000. What this paper basically shows is that in states 
that have access to medical marijuana, the mortality from opioid overdose has decreased by 25%. And so, you know, we can we could talk about why this is a lot of different ways. You know, it may be that people really are trying to get high, and they don't care if they get high from Percocet or marijuana. And it turns out marijuana is probably a lot safer. And so if they're getting high from marijuana, it's probably safer. But a 25% reduction in mortality is an absolutely incredible statistic. Um, you know, and, and in, a, in a very well-conducted study that was published in um, JAMA. So I don't even know all the JAMA's now. JAMA Internal Medicine, which I don't know what that is anymore. Is that a separate journal from JAMA? I don't know. Uh, so yeah, I already spoke about this stuff. Um, dependence. So yeah, that's what we're worried about, um, mostly. So this is a very commonly um, uh, referenced study, this Robeson study. And the lifetime dependence risk of nicotine, if you smoke, 32%. Heroin, cocaine, alcohol, marijuana, 9%. It's the lowest of all these substances. And um, many people believe, and, it's, and even the dictionologists, even if you talk to Seth and Savage, even if you talk to the dictionologists, they, they have a hard time disputing the fact that adult age of initiation low to moderate use, use for therapeutic rather than recreational purposes, appears to be protective against dependency. So you know, if we're selecting these patients carefully, then we're probably not going to hurt too many of them because of, uh, of uh, dependency risk. Um, there is data to show that kids and adolescents should smoke marijuana. It definitely de delays the development of the developing brain. Um, not as much as alcohol, um, but it does. And so it's almost like, well, it's not as bad as alcohol. Yeah, I know, but still, you don't want your kid, you know, to have vacuoles in his or her brain cells, and so uh, you know, so it's not for early use. Um, it, it can, it's believed, to cause an earlier onset of schizophrenia in patients likely to develop schizophrenia, and it may be associated with an increased incidence of bipolar disorder and some other psychiatric illnesses in adolescents um, or children who use this drug. And the drug, and marijuana is actually teratogenic, and should not be used by pregnant women. So, so if, you, if you say, really, who shouldn't use it? You shouldn't be driving, probably. You shouldn't be a neurosurgeon and working, probably. And you shouldn't be a pregnant woman, and you shouldn't be a kid. And, uh, and those, those folks sort of get ruled out to some degree. Or It's a risk-benefit analysis, always. But they do get ruled out to some degree in my deciding how to use medical cannabis. Um, but for you know, adult onset, you know, no, re retired whatever person, I think that there are real advantages. And if you compare it to opioid use, so what are the risks of opioids? Addiction, constipation, sedation, sexual dysfunction, hypogonadism, increased risk of fractures, increased risk of osteoporosis, increased risk of certain types of infections, and increased risk of certain types of tumors. And so I can't come up with a list like that for cannabis yet. Maybe we will someday. But it seems, you know, I've, I've used it, as I mentioned, I don't know, 30 times or 40 times, and, um, and have had pretty good luck. I've had one patient come back to my office so incredibly impaired that I actually couldn't believe that he would come to see me that way. And, um, and I wouldn't renew. You have to renew this every year. And I wouldn't renew his uh, cannabis you know, attestation. And the state of Vermont is working now on um, providers being able to contact the state and rescinding a medical cannabis attestation. Because right now, there's no way to rescind that. You have to wait a year until the patient comes back to see you again. So I'll stop right there. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you, Gil. Just throw up. I was very curious about your 
scenario with the delirium and uh, just tell you a case of a patient that we had recent experience with and we turned the patient of ours who has a long history of um, steady alcohol use but, but was saying that he was not drinking very much and uh, daily marijuana use and daily low-dose opioids. And he was admitted with pneumonia and was originally um, not delirious and not in respiratory failure, but within 48 hours of admission, he became a lot more agitated and um, really had was intubated in part due to his delirium and agitation. And so they initiated initially a um, uh, advanced scale. They thought he was withdrawing from alcohol, wasn't helping, and then started using Heldol. And Heldol apparently wasn't initially helping either. And he ultimately was intubated and then um, for several days, relatively quickly extubated, finished his treatment for uh, pneumonia, mm -hmm. and then was still having some agitation symptoms, um, and ultimately signed up on hospital AMA. And in retrospect, just hearing your talk, I think he was withdrawing probably from uh, uh, marijuana, from from uh, cannabinoids when he was in the ICU, uh, or that that was contributing mm -hmm. to the problem. Mm -hmm. And if we were to have known that going in, is there anything else we should have done other than use Haldol up front, or is there a way to quantitate that in any way? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, you could, uh, I, I really don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, this hasn't been written about at all, pretty much. Mostly because patients aren't willing to admit, you know, when they come into the hospital what they're taking and what their problems are. But you wonder if, um, you know, if you gave this guy a small dose of Marinol, yeah. Might it have, you know, attenuated his symptoms somewhat? But I don't really know. We did you know, there is a marijuana withdrawal syndrome, as you alluded to. But. He um, he was being treated um, with benzos, and he ultimately got small doses of narcotics also because we were concerned that he that he was withdrawing from narcotics. Um, by history, you know, he doesn't use that much of either of those. So he's mm -hmm. He uses some, but you know, by history, he drinks uh, two beers on Sunday. So, it is yeah. pretty interesting, though. I mean, if you think that you know, so when I was in high school, you know, the THC content of marijuana was one and a half percent, two and a half percent, three percent, and now you know, THC content which you can buy in Montpelier is up to twenty-five percent. And so I don't know, you know, if you smoke like two or three twenty-five percent joints a day. Yeah. You know, what happens you know, for a year? What happens if all of a sudden you stop using cannabis? I, don't, I have no idea, and I don't think anybody has any idea. Really. He wants to be on the medical marijuana program. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, that's a different story. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. When we're prescribers for patients with opioids, we take every responsibility around safety. This, we're just sort of allowing this. Um, do you think we should be taking any level of responsibility? Yeah. So, so my opinion, my just my bias about that is we're absolutely liable. I mean, I think that you know, five years from now, people can sue you for anything, you know. And uh, five years from now, we find out that marijuana actually causes 
some horrible disease, you know, and all of us get sued, you know, for, for attesting to the fact that a patient has a medical condition. I put in my notes, you know, risks and benefits of marijuana were, you know, used for discussed in detail, including unused, unknown risks of prolonged or excessive use and all the rest of that stuff. And, um, you know, we're reconvening the opioid guidelines committee here, opioid policy committee. And I think one of the things I'm going to bring up is that we need to have a dot phrase or some type of a phrase, you know, that we can all put into our notes if we're going to, if we're going to attest to the use of this drug that protects us a little bit. Because, you know, I mean, I know as much about this as almost anybody I know now, and I really, I can't answer half your questions. I don't know. You know, it's still such a gray area, you know, for all of us. So I mean, I, I, we had a conference here in November, which was really excellent. And um, we had a guy that, the, his name is Shane Lynn, who owns the Brattleboro and Montpelier dispensaries, come and speak to us all as well. And um, he, he, was, he wasn't really complaining, but he was stating that he wished the doctors knew more about like, what to recommend, he said, because you know, you're leaving it up to the people that I hire to work in my dispensaries to tell people what to use. And I'm very uncomfortable with that. He, he didn't feel, and I told you about the patient with the sativa in the morning, indica at night, two to one you know, CBD to you know, THC ratio, you know, um, whatever she puts under her tongue. I mean, it is, it's a little bit complicated, you know, I mean, there are actually, and I've been thinking about it for my retirement, and I'm just kidding, but there are cannabis physicians. There are physicians who specialize, you know, in California and in other states in just uh, advising pay people on how to use cannabis for their illnesses. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's as complicated as using, um, you know, I don't even know what generation cephalosporins exist now, but you know, third generation cephalosporins, it's not as complicated as what you guys do, what the pharmacologists among us do, um, but it's, it's pretty complicated for a lot of people. So maybe the next, my next job, I don't know. <laughs> yes. I'm curious how you navigate the, um, the sort of boundary between proven uses and um, plausible uses and how you, you know, and, and specifically whether you deal with uh, cannabinoids the same way you would other drugs. So uh, to orient you, you know, I have a, I have a couple of patients, both of whom make requests for the early attestation. One who believes that the only way she can take her HIV meds is to have um, some appetite stimulant, mm -hmm. um, uh, or else they lose too much weight. Uh, and I feel a little skeptical about that, uh, despite there being reasonable evidence that appetite stimulation is something that it does. Or another patient who um, wants it to sort of help with social anxiety. And on one hand, I sort of feel reluctant to use this. I'm thinking, well, this feels a little recreational, and that's fine with me, but I don't want to need to be the middleman. On the other hand, I, you know, uh, I can think of lots of medicines, you know, benzodiazepines are an example of things for whom our usage patterns are not strictly confined to the evidence. So I'm curious how you navigate that when somebody makes you a gray area request. Yeah, I think I, I you know, I, so I got asked, so I got asked at a, I was at a meeting and somebody says, well, so, you know, if somebody smoked marijuana two nights ago, do you think it would be okay for them to drive a car? And I said, yeah, probably. And they said, well, how about if they smoked marijuana two nights ago and they were driving a school bus? Do you think that would be okay? And I said, no, I don't think so. So I don't know. You know, we sort of, 
the, you know, I, I want to you know, give you the answer that it's an evidence-based medicine approach. And what is evidence-based medicine? Evidence-based medicine means is you're aware of the best evidence out there. You're making clinical decisions based on the best available evidence. In this situation, there's not a lot of evidence, you know, and so you're making a clinical decision that's based on whatever you make it up. You know, it's based on evidence, but it's also based on your own biases and your own opinions, et cetera. And so, yeah, and I think that it'd be very interesting. You know, we, there's some, there's a, there are 10,000 studies we could do. You know, we could take a single marijuana patient, like the social phobia patient that you described, and we could have that patient present identically to 10 different physicians here at Dartmouth or nurse practitioners or whoever and see what people do. And I bet you they wouldn't all do the same thing. So... <laughs> So it's a great question. I, I don't know what the answer is, but I think it's a um, it's it's a um, it's a dilemma, not a conundrum. <laughs> so. <laughs> In your clinical work, do you ever uh, use a quantitative cannabinoid level? No, because <laughs> you know it's, it, well, it's like using uh, quantitative opioid levels. Mm -hmm. They have no real value mm -hmm. at all. So. You know, I've, I've, I never used them. And, you know, it's, it's funny, um, you know, 10 years ago, um, we had doctors in the pain clinic who wouldn't write. And I think today, actually, we still do have, have a doctor in the pain clinic who will not prescribe opioids to somebody who smokes cannabis. And even for me, I have patients like that. I haven't made a general rule of it. But it's like I said, you know, if I have the 30-year-old, you know, who fell off the back of a truck two years ago and his leg hurts, and uh, his x-rays are negative, and everything is negative, and everything is negative, and I'm treating him with low-dose opioids, and um, he's, he is having trouble getting back to work, I will not treat him with opioids if he uses cannabis. So he's got to choose between one or the other. I will say, though, that I have about, of my 30 or 40 patients, I probably have 10 patients who, when they, when they came to me and said, well, look, will you do this for me? I said, I will, but you have to stop using opioids. And I have about 10 patients who, do, and I have to say, I can't believe how quickly they came off of their high doses of opioids. Like, so I don't know, you know, it raises the question, is it, was it just recreational to start with? Or is cannabis as good or better an analgesic than opioids in a subset of patients? I don't know which it is. Yes? So for somebody who has a pain syndrome, I mean, will there be times when there could be an additive effect? Of, I mean, it seems like the right. opioids aren't very good. Say, say it again? It seems like opioids don't do a great job right. generally. But right. I'm thinking about even the woman that you saw for us a couple of weeks ago. You know, when I think about her PTSD history and, mm -hmm. and you know, just the and, and um, difficulty with GI stuff, you know, would there be a reason not to use a little bit in addition to an opioid and see if one, I mean, yeah, so that's a great question. If I'm recalling the, the same patient, this is a patient that has a long history of polysubstance abuse, yes. IV drug abuse, yes. frequent um, remissions and exacerbations of Not drug use. Much, but when, when she gets kicked and, but, but with clear objective evidence of a horribly painful disorder. Yeah. And um, so I don't know, you know. I mean, would I use it instead of opioids? It, um, yeah. So am I willing? So she's, she's the 9% lifetime risk of addiction. You know, I would guess her risk is higher. You know, so I don't know. I would say, you know, it's possible that I would use cannabis for her. You know, I worry about her, though. And I worry, I mean, we have, you know, we share a lot of patients. And, you know, you know the whole, um, will you continue to prescribe opioids after people have gone back to using heroin again? But now they're in remission again. 
will you re-prescribe their opioids to them again? That's always a hard question for me. Because the consequence is death. So. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.